0: Whenever you're having a really bad day, I want you to think of this number. This number is the probability of you existing, that you're this sentient being alive in this vast universe. That number is exceedingly small. In fact, it's about zero. Your mom and dad have to meet. They have to stay together long enough to have kids. And then that egg and that sperm have to connect and so on. A guy by the name of Dr. Ali Binazir has calculated the odds of you being you. And that number is one, followed by 2,685,000 zeros. By way of analogy, here's how he describes it. Imagine there was one life preserver thrown somewhere in some ocean, and there is exactly one turtle in all of these oceans swimming underwater somewhere. The probability that you came about and exist today is the same as that turtle sticking its head out of the water in the middle of that life preserver on one try, which is just mind-boggling. Now let's get even weirder. Add in the chances of you getting into a band that becomes successful, and not just successful, but a group that becomes world-changing. You can add another... (laughs) what six nine twelve zeros to that last number now consider this what if you got into a second successful band that stays together for decades and also becomes one of the biggest things rock has ever seen and that's good for what another three another six another nine zeros so in this completely unscientific extrapolation of dr Bitterzier's estimate of the uniqueness of existence The chances of Dave Grohl being Dave Grohl is at the very lowest one in two quadrillion, 685 trillion, give or take. This is the third and final part of our ultra deep look at the guy. This is the ongoing history of new music podcast with Alan Cross. The Foo Fighters with Dave Grohl, of course, and Monkey Wrench from the second Foo's album The Color and the Shape, which is a strange title. Dave?
1: It's actually a really ridiculous tour anecdote that uh, just a stupid tour joke means nothing at all. But we just got back from Japan where we did some interviews down there and people seemed to take the title seriously. They thought that we... I had meant for it to be an example of the personality of the band. So this album is more colorful, and it has more personality, and now this is the color and the shape of the Foo Fighters. And so I said, yeah, okay, sure, that'll work. I can go with that. That's
0: okay. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the third and final installment of an ultra-deep look into the life and career of Dave Grohl. We've been doing this in parallel with the standard historical chronology that's been done on Dave a million times, So we're filling in the gaps, gaps that even some of the biggest fans don't know about. We'll pick up where we left off on episode two, which was the early days of the Foo Fighters. Specifically, as we've just established, the second album. Item number 17 on our vast list of things relates to a particular song on that record. Dave has spoken about the inspiration for the song My Hero. So here he is again.
1: Actually, My Hero is about... um is about having just ordinary heroes, you know? When I was young, I didn't have big sports heroes, you know? There were bands that I liked and there were musicians that I admired, but I didn't have like rock heroes. And I just always thought of a hero as someone that you could relate to and was a really strong, respectable person. Not just someone that's like seven feet tall and can put a basketball in a hoop, you know. So most of my heroes when I was young were people that I knew, that I admired or respected for different reasons and wanted to grow up and be like them, you know.
0: So that's kind of what that song's about. Okay, that's fine. But this is, at the very least, related. Dave is, even today, a hockey fan. His very first hero was Jim Craig, Now, if you remember the 1980 miracle on ice, when the USA beat the Soviet Union to win the gold medal at the Olympics, Jim Craig was the starting goalie for the Americans. Dave became Craig's number one fan. Then he found out that Craig was from Worcester, Massachusetts. Then he made it a mission to find all the phone numbers belonging to Jim Craig's in the area, and he phoned them all and congratulated all of them. I'm not sure if Dave actually connected with Jim Craig, the Olympic goalie, but they did meet at the Winter Olympics years later, which is a whole twist to the My Hero thing, right? Moving on to item number 18 in our Dave Grohl dossier, here are a few things about the third Foos album, There Is Nothing Left To Lose. If you know the album artwork, there's a shot at the back of Dave's head with the Foo Fighters logo on the back of his neck. The first pressing of that 1999 album came with a rub-on tattoo, just like that one. In Australia, the album came out with entirely different artwork. It's a black-and-white shot of Michael Klim, one of the country's great swimmers, and he has a Foo's logo tattooed on his left shoulder. This, obviously, makes the Australian edition of the album somewhat collectible but not as much as you might think. I looked it up. You can find a used copy of the CD from $7 and up. But it also comes with an extra track called Fraternity and a video disc that features four tracks. If Foo's collectibles are your thing, you're better off looking to Japan because they often come with unusual bonus tracks. This is because of a quirk of the Japanese CD industry where domestic CDs cost more than imports. Now that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. Domestic labels need to add value to their more expensive versions to entice people to buy them. I have a Japanese EP for Times Like These, which was a single from the 2002 album, One by One. It features this live version of Learn to Fly, which is from There is Nothing Left to Lose. Live Foos, and like I said, that one is a bonus track from a Japanese EP. It's not terribly rare, but still fun to collect. All right, so what is the most collectible Foos thing out there? This is item number 19 in our dossier. It's got to be a love song that Dave wrote for a one-time girlfriend. This was Christmas 2001. He recorded it, had it packaged up like a proper CD, and gave it to her. And then he reportedly destroyed all the remaining vestiges of that song. The foos have never played it, and Dave has vowed to never release it. She, we assume, has the only copy in existence anywhere in the universe. Okay, so who is this woman? Well, if we go back through Dave's dating history, and yes, the internet will do that for us, the answer might be Melissa Oftomar, the Canadian bass player known for her work with both the Smashing Pumpkins and Hole. Or it might be Carrie Werher, the American actress. She and Dave saw each other between 1999 and 2002, so maybe. Here is item number 20. The Foos won a Grammy for There Is Nothing Left To Lose. Dave used his Grammy as a doorstop for his bedroom for a while, uh, but it since graduated to a shelf. The appropriate thing to do now, the expected thing, would be to play something from that album. But let's do the unexpected thing. There were two special editions of Nothing Left To Lose, an expanded version And a special one that came out in Norway with a bunch of bonus tracks recorded in Oslo on December 4th, 2002. So let's hear one of those tracks. Foos live in Oslo, just before Christmas 2002. Back with more ultra-deep info on Dave Grohl in just a second. This is the third and final installment of some super-deep background into the Foo Fighters in general and Dave Grohl in particular. We are now up to item number 21 on our list of unknown, or at least lesser-known things. By the time the Foo's got to the one by one album in 2005, they had enough money to invest in their own recording studio in Northridge, California. They call it 606 Studios. After making a couple of Foo's albums in Dave's basement back east he just decided it was time to have a proper facility. So they invested $750,000 of their own money to make it happen. I've been to 606. Technically, this is 606 West. 606 East was Dave's basement in Virginia. It's in a a really nondescript, semi-residential part of town. And during my last visit, the place across a narrow street was a marshalling area for trucks carrying porter potties to parks and other public places where the homeless tend to congregate. The area is also known as the porno film capital of the world. 606 itself is really cool. Dave calls it the all-purpose Foo Fighters Hub. They rehearse there. They store their gear there. They make albums there. They hold press events and photo shoots. It's the dream spot for any band. 8,000 square feet. And it comes with a strange history. It was originally the home of a woman who was being stalked. And the stalker tried to burn the place down. The template... Is a place called Polar Studios in Stockholm, which is owned by ABBA. That's where Led Zeppelin went to record their In Through the Outdoor album. The control room eventually acquired the recording console from the famed Sound City Studios that went out of business. That console has been used by Nirvana, Nevermind was made on it, Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine, Slipknot, Tom Petty, and so many more. The recording room itself is massive. The ceiling has to be at least 30 feet high. This is an old warehouse. The rest of the building is filled with gear and all manner of Nirvana and Foo's memorabilia, stuff that Dave used to store in his mum's basement. The most charming thing I saw were the throw pillows on the couches. They were made by Dave's mum from his old concert t-shirts. Here's a track recorded for the In Your Honor album, which by the way was almost called Foo Are You. The studio wasn't quite finished when they moved in, so everybody had to help out with things like stuffing in insulation. Yeah. The Foos and Best of You from the In Your Honor album. Dave didn't really want that song on the record, but he was ultimately convinced that it might be the right thing to do. Moving to Dave Grohl item number 22, it took The Foos until 2007 and the album Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace for them to record an instrumental track. If you're familiar with the record, you'll know that it contains something called Ballad of the Beaconsville Miners. This was dedicated to some real-life miners trapped in a gold mine in Tasmania, nearly a kilometer deep. They were stuck there for almost two weeks, and during that time, one of the three miners requested an iPod loaded with the Foo's In Your Honor album. Dave wrote them a note. My heart is with you both, and I want you to know that when you come home, there's two tickets to any Foo show anywhere and two cold beers waiting for you. Deal? It is a deal, by the way, that Dave honored. And the whole episode moved Dave to record this. An instrumental written for some gold miners trapped in a collapse in Tasmania in 2006. There was a long gap between the Echo, Silence, Patience, and Grace album and the next record, four years, but it wasn't supposed to be that way, which brings us to item number 23. The Foos had actually planned to record an album which they would put out and not spend too much time promoting and touring behind, but the sessions dragged on and on, nothing was happening, so they decided to take a rest instead. When they did reconvene in 2012, they decided not to record at 606, but in Dave's garage, So they hauled in all kinds of old analog equipment and hired Butch Vig, the producer of Nirvana's Nevermind album, to sort things out. Why would they do this? They've got a perfectly good studio. Well, Dave explains, There's poetry in being the band that can sell out Wembley, but also make a record in a garage. Why go into the most expensive studio with the biggest producer and use the best state-of-the-art equipment? Where's the rock and roll in that? It was a way to do something really primal-sounding innovate, break people's expectations, and make records the way we used to make records. There was absolutely nothing digital about this album until the mastering process. No computers. It was old-school analog with ancient tape recorders all the way. Edits to the tapes were done with razor blades and splicing tape, just like they used to do back in the day. The control room was a tent in the backyard. One of the precious tapes from that sessions was actually ruined by one of Dave's daughters when she was playing around unsupervised. Don't let your kids into the studio when there's nobody there. So if you've ever thought that the Wasting Light album somehow sounds more raw than any other Foos album, well, there's your answer. Foo Fighters and Rope from the Wasting Light album. By the way, that record reunited three of four people responsible for Nirvana's Nevermind. Dave, producer Butch Vig, and Nirvana bass player, Chris Novoselic. He plays on a song called, I Should Have Known. We have time for a couple of more underreported Dave Grohl facts and we'll get to them after this. We're in the final stretch with this three-parter on the lesser known things about Dave Grohl's background. We're at item number 24, and this has to do with cover versions. The Foos love playing other people's music. If you've ever seen them play live, you'll know this. Plus, they've released a lot of covers. There's even a collection available if you know where to look. For Record Store Day in 2011, the Foos released a limited edition vinyl thing called Medium Rare. It features 13 songs covered by the Foos over the years. And it leads off with this something they did for the BBC back in 2004. Not bad huh foo fighters from a vinyl only release called medium rare and to make this an even 25 items about dave Grohl in this dossier i'm gonna cheat a little bit by jamming in a bunch of facts right here at the end so here we go dave's favorite dr seuss book is if i ran the rainforest there's no real need to know that but there you go for the band's 2011 tour they sent out their rider their requirements for backstage before during and after the show in the form of a coloring book. Dave was banned from driving in Australia after being caught drunk on a motor scooter. If Dave weren't a rock star, he might have followed his other career aspiration of being a helicopter pilot. He holds a Guinness Book of World Records record of sorts. His birthplace of Warren, Ohio, honored him by erecting a giant pair of drumsticks in the town center. They weigh 902 pounds, making them the heaviest in the world. And if you want to get on Dave's good side, get him some cheese. He likes cheese. A lot. If ever be this good again.
1: The only thing i ever ask of you. You gotta promise not to stop when I say when she say.
0: These days, Dave lives in a very quiet area of Encino, California. His house looks Really normal, complete with a white picket fence and a sign that simply says, The grows out front. No gates, no guards, no fences. It's just normal. Dave is one of the most fascinating characters to come along in the history of rock. And let me just leave you with this. As far as I've ever been able to tell, and certainly in all my interactions with him, Dave really does deserve the title as the nicest man in rock. That much seems to be very, very true. If you want to keep up to date on what's happening with music at any given time, I invite you to my website, which is always being updated. It's ajournalofmusicalthings.com. You should also get the free newsletter that comes with it. It's published daily and goes right to your inbox, totally free. There's the podcast edition of this program. They're free too. Get them at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, basically any platform that offers podcasts. And download and binge. That's not only allowed, but also encouraged. We can also connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And all email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. We'll see you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.